This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. today with Dr. Bill Nance. Hello. As well as Dr. Martin Clemus. Hello. And we have a very special episode today with a group of veterans from the Vietnam War. So gentlemen, let's go ahead and begin. If you guys want to introduce yourselves. My name is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Jack Burkett. I was uh, in Vietnam in 1970-71 uh, as a helicopter pilot. My name is uh, Brigadier General Retired Bill West. Uh, I served two tours in Vietnam, the first one from 66-67 as a provincial advisor, and then uh, returned two years later uh, to be the S-3 of the 1st Squadron, 10th Cavalry in the 4th Infantry Division. Okay. I'm Colonel Retired Tom Diles. I uh, was in Vietnam from the fall of 1971 until uh, the Task Force on the last uh, maneuver unit for the 1st Cavalry Division. Uh, uh, stood down in August of 1972. Okay, we're very glad to have you with us. Um, so let's go ahead and start at the beginning. Um, all, all three of you arrived in Vietnam in, in a conflict that had already been going on for at least some length of time. So what was your impression of the conflict before you got there? Whether it was uh, as a member of the military or even before you were in the military, what did you think of the war as it was going on before you were there? Well, I had... Uh I had very few thoughts about it because I went from straight from Germany, uh, serving in, as the S3 of a tank battalion, uh, to Vietnam, and uh, uh, my days were pretty well occupied in Germany, and so uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, information and a lot of noise uh, in Germany about what was going on in Vietnam. So I had, until I got to uh, to Fort Bragg to the advisors course and then on to the language school. I really had no uh, uh, real deep perception of what was going on. And, uh, but that quickly changed once I got there. Uh, but as far as knowing what the, the greater uh, concept of the war was, uh, even as an advisor, I never got that. I was in my own little province and, and operating in my own little world. I grew up as a military brat. My father was a career uh, NCO and then a warrant officer, and a World War II veteran in Korea. Uh, so I guess my perspective on the war was kind of colored by how I grew up, uh, which is a lot different than what civilians were. But as I, I went off to, to my undergraduate program at the University of Kentucky, that's in the Southeastern Conference. And mm-hmm. That's a different perspective than I would have had had I gone to Michigan State or some school like that. So, uh, but I was uh, the the entire perception of the war uh, changed after Tet, even where I was. Uh, 
that was the big divide. Um, and I was commissioned uh, out of the ROTC program at the University of Kentucky uh, the week after the Kent State shootings. Uh, so I understood very clearly that this was not a very popular undertaking. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, I didn't have any military expertise at the time to make any judgments about it, but it, it wasn't going well. And I knew that Nixon's idea was Vietnamize the war, get the hell out. Peace with honor, peace with you know, whatever, mm -hmm. but get out. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's Jack Burkett. Uh, I had none. I was raised in a uh, rural farming community in northwest Tennessee. A lot of uh, World War II vets there, including my father. There was a pretty patriotic bunch, and uh, there was no question that you would do your duty. Once I uh, got ready to graduate from college, my friends and neighbors decided to draft me, and uh, I decided that I was. I, there was no question that I would go in the army or some service. It was a question of where and how I went in. So I elected to uh, enlist, and uh, I, I, with no one paper a week and uh, no TV uh, to speak of and uh, you only had radio, you didn't get a lot of information in my area about what was going on. I mean, you knew about it, but it, it, I had no clue of uh, what was what I would be getting into or even in the Army, but uh, something you did and you didn't, you didn't uh, back away from it. So quick question. Uh, so. Uh, both uh, Colonel Dials and uh, General West, uh, you you both were uh, military prior to uh, you had a, you had a extensive military career prior to Vietnam, correct? Yes. And and uh, Colonel Bur Burkett, you, you as well? No, I okay. have no. So that was your that was your, your first field problem, right? I, I, I sympathize. OIF one was my first field problem. Um, so with that said. Uh, for you two gentlemen, perhaps, what was going on in the professional discussion of the Army? Like you said, you just come from Germany. Uh, during, for my war, Iraq and Afghanistan, but predominantly Iraq, consumed our thinking, right? Everything was about getting ready to go, what's happening with what you're doing there, and resetting to go again. So the entire Army professional thought process is involved in that. Was that something similar to what you guys were seeing, or was it, some, or was Germany really the main effort? In my case, Germany was the main effort. You know, Twelfth Guards Army. You know, I didn't uh, think too much about uh, anything except uh, how do I get to my D GDP position? Uh, how do I uh, uh, qualify my tank? How do I prepare myself for battle? And how do I help uh, the squadron or the battalion commander prepare the battalion for battle as the S3? I commanded two companies in that battalion. The first battalion, 37th Armor, uh, which uh, has a big history of its own. It's the battalion that liberated Bastogne with General Creighton Abrams as the commander. And uh, so uh, I, I guess. It was not until I got to uh, Fort Bragg and started to, to learn about Vietnam <coughs> that I really started to have a perspective of, uh, of, of the, the war that was going on. 
I think uh, the Army was very focused on Korea and Germany. My father had served in uh, the, during the Korean War there as an artilleryman, then uh, went back with the 1st Cav Division in 1960, and then got assigned uh, after that to Germany and was in the regimental headquarters of the 11th Cav. At that time, the regimental headquarters was in Straubing, so up on the Czech border north and east of Munich, uh, squadrons uh, in Straubing, Lonshut, and Regensburg, and secured the Czech border from Passau up to, I think, Hof. Uh, so a long stretch of border that the 11th Cav Patrol focus, my father's focus, the regiment's focus, was completely on the Warsaw Pact forces and attacks down uh, Highway 14, really, I guess, was the big uh, focus, and, and that's what they worried about. So Vietnam was background noise up through 1966. And now, Lieutenant Colonel Briquette, uh, so... Um for you guys, so you, this was your first experience, Vietnam was your first experience. Uh, so with that said, what was it like in the initial entry training piece? Was it, Were they talking about Vietnam or were they talking about uh, fighting the Soviets? Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I was, a, when I was, when I was uh, uh, sworn in, there's 300 people there in that uh, AFES, 298 of them went to Fort Campbell, which was 30 miles from my month-old bride, and they sent me to Fort Dix, New Jersey. Sounds like the Army. So I kind of had a little problem. But <laughs> anyway, the the basic training was with the M16, and they were teaching us the rapid fire. You throw up a, a washer and you shoot it without aiming. That, that Because they found that there, you didn't have time to aim, you just kind of, it was muscle memory. So you could throw up a quarter, and just ping them right up. They were BB guns, but it, it was really pretty good training out of out of all of that. So uh, that's uh, that's what I remember most about about Vietnam. Uh, most of the sergeants, drill sergeants, were Korea vets who had been Korea. Not a lot of them from Vietnam at that time. That was in you know '67. Yeah. And then once I got to OCS, it was all Vietnam training. Small unit tactics, small small villages that was constructed to look like Vietnam all, all the way through like that. So I, I got some more appreciation in, in Fort Benning. So what you're basically, uh, what you gentlemen are describing is really there was almost two, one might even argue three armies going on during your during this period. You had the army in Germany, with the focus on the next uh, Soviet uh, uh, Soviet conflict, you had the army back in the United States, which was uh, probably the least funded and less least taken care of, and then you had the army that was resourcing Vietnam and in Vietnam. It, it, did the and I'm getting that the those three parts didn't seem to talk together very much. Would that be an accurate statement? Yeah, I think so, and I I would say there's a fourth. That was the Korea Army. Right. Uh, so there was an entire division in Korea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At that time. I don't know that the uh, when I was in OCS and uh, graduated in '68, there they had three battalions training officer candidates, and each battalion had six to seven companies, and they were graduating a company a week. 
So they were pumping out lieutenants at Benning at that time, uh, just at a, at a phenomenal rate. So that tells me they were focused on Vietnam. And, and if you dropped out of OCS, you were sent across the street to the repo depot, and 30 days later, you're in Vietnam. So it, it really transitioned, I think, pretty quickly uh, from, from my perspective, 67, 68, when we really got involved in training. And it was all Vietnam. There was no you know, gunnery or anything like that. It was all small unit tactics. So you all, as you said, um, in some ways you're coming into the Vietnam conflict with, with basically just your training, right? And you all uh, in some way mentioned that getting to Vietnam was, was an awakening or uh, changed opinions about the conflict or, or um, so something along those lines. So what was it like for you to get to Vietnam in your respective eras? What did you learn immediately? What did you realize about the conflict? And what did you see as kind of your role in it beyond, obviously, the, the mission you've been given? I have a little anecdote in my past about uh, arriving in, in Vietnam. Uh, I arrived in the middle of the night. And uh, as an advisor, we went to uh, an advisor headquarters called Copler Compound. And it was in the Chinese district of uh, Saigon. Uh, I was told, uh, room up here, old French hotel. Uh, I go to the room and I was also told, uh, you know, if you put your uh, uniform out tomorrow, the maids will wash it and it'll have, it'll be back. So I woke up uh, probably eight o'clock, something like that. And uh, I could hear conversation out on the balcony and I went out in my best Vietnamese and asked them if they would uh, uh, wash my clothes. And they all giggled and replied to me in a language I had never heard before. I thought, oh my God, I spent all that time in language school and I can't speak a word. It was culture shock in the biggest form. I made a comment to the personnel officers we were processing that morning about, uh, man, I went to language school and I can't talk to the maids. He said, oh, they don't speak Vietnamese, they're Chinese. <laughs> well, the story is this. I think all of us, the day we got there, went through a culture shock that we had not anticipated. And it took me about uh, two weeks before I could force myself to speak in the Vietnamese language. And by that time, I had arrived at my advisory team, and uh, you know it was a, it was a labor culture shock. Will put you back on your heels faster than anything I know. Uh, the, the the culture shock is is, is true. The uh, I, I told earlier that uh, you get off the stretch eight. Uh, First thing that hits you is the smell of the burning oil and fecal matter that they use to dispose of it. I mean that that came at you just hard, 
But what I I, fo I was in Vietnam and there wasn't anything I could do about it, so I, I might as well might as well make the best of it. So what I tried to focus on was learn how to fly a helicopter differently than what they taught me in flight school by listening to the guys in my unit that knew what they were doing. Yes, sir, are you uh, Huey? Uh, well, I, I, the the Eleventh Armored Cavalry, the second each squadron of the Eleventh Armored Cavalry Regiment had its own aviation section. Two Hueys and two Loaches, OH-6s, that they used to command and control uh, the fight. And that's what I flew in this little aviation section there. So uh, any one given day I'd fly the Huey or the Loach and and it was the, the Colonel's uh, own little Air Force. He did, we could fly medevacs, we'd fly combat assaults, we'd fly scout missions. You know, any day we did anything and every one of them, the situations were different on how you handled that aircraft. Just got a special place in my heart for gunship pilots. So <laughs> I, I didn't fly the gunship, but uh, the Loach okay. was the best aircraft I flew. Mm -hmm. Is there any comments on that? Well, I mean, obviously, you, you, there's a certain amount of culture shock involved with just, uh, Jack mentioned earlier in the seminar with the students, just the smell when they open the door on the airplane. It's, it's different than anything that you've mm -hmm. seen before, smelled before, and we, uh, went to the 90th replacement, unlike uh, you know, Jack got his assignment uh, by stroke of fortune. I had a set of pinpoint orders to the 11th Cav and ended up in the 101st in the Air Cav Squadron. It was the divisional uh, squadron for the uh, 101st. I didn't really see, in my whole tour in Vietnam, I didn't see Vietnamese, I almost never saw them in the field and, unless they weren't supposed to be there, and then you dealt with that. But uh, you know, you just you weren't around them much in an American unit, unlike the advisors and stuff like that. We just we didn't interact with them much. And, and sir, I'd like to kind of build off that one, uh, sir. General, I'd like to kind of start with you on this one because you started as an advisor and then went to a regular unit. Yeah, two uh, years later, yeah. but I had a full year as an advisor. And because it's kind of backwards from my experience, because I actually spent uh, my first two tours in Iraq were spent in combat units. My second tour uh, was in Mosul fighting with the Iraqi army in 2008. And then, so peer working with them and then moving on. And then I advised the Saudi uh, National Guard in 2017. So what was the experience like being working with the uh, Army of the Republic of Vietnam or the uh, local forces? Good, bad? Was it better being an advisor first and then being in the Union? Well, I think so, because when I got to uh, the 10th Cav, I, I had a pretty good perspective of what, what the fight was. My first tour, uh, uh, an advisory team had, uh, I was the operations advisor and, and therefore I was the guy that worked with the regional and popular forces. We had 11 companies and 92 platoons that guarded hamlets at night. Uh, we had a intel advisor, logistics advisor, uh, we had an administrative sergeant, uh, we had a logistics sergeant. Uh, so we had a pretty cohesive team. We had a first sergeant uh, who was the first sergeant of the, of the team, and uh, uh, it was headed by a lieutenant colonel uh, who had uh, been uh, drafted at the end of World War II, uh, had served in Korea, 
had been in a firefight in Vietnam, and he was the first guy I ever saw that had two stars on his CIB. And uh, so working with that group was a very professional experience. Uh, I had a, uh, my counterpart was a Vietnamese major, and he was from North Vietnam. He had made the journey with his family at the end of the Accords uh, with the French down to South Vietnam. Uh, he was uh, an infantry major, a uh, very brave guy, had, already, had received uh, an American Bronze Star for rescuing one of the advisors in a, about a year or so before. So my experience there was, was, was shaping, uh, and it shaped my attitude uh, when I got back to, uh, to the, the 4th Division and the 10th Cav in, uh, in uh, 68. And uh, Colonel Burkett, did you have any experience working with the uh, Republic of Vietnam uh, forces, or no hooch mates? <laughs> that's, 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 seriously, I yeah. mean that's a we uh, you know other than I, I hate me flip it, but the uh, we sometimes we had to do pigs and chickens runs, you know, went into hearts and minds, I guess, and then pigs would crap all over the helicopter. We, uh, that's, we had land, land on the beach and the, get out brushes and because you had to take the plates off the floor of the helicopter because it all seeped down in there or these helicopters are going to stink so you had to go somewhere and clean it up so I didn't like pigs and chicken right? but I, I never worked with any uh, now I, I was in flight school with uh, Vietnamese pilots uh, they uh, they ran to they ran to gamut from really good to just downright dangerous uh, but so did the Americans. So did the Americans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I flew with some of those guys. Just as, as an aside, Colonel Patton was in my flight school class, and uh, he had his own little area set aside that we couldn't fly. <laughs> I never saw him. He was, but he wasn't around us. But no, I had no uh, no meaningful contact with any Vietnamese military forces. Colonel. Uh. We had a Vietnamese platoon work with my company on one mission. Uh, they weren't around me much. I saw them. Uh, they just didn't, it, it never registered with me. They didn't appear to be very disciplined, but I didn't see or work with them well enough to form any real opinions about them. But I think it's kind of like we, you know, what Wilbanks writes in his books. You know, they kind of run the gamut. There were some very good Vietnamese units, and there were some terrible ones. And I just yeah. finished uh, reading uh, the Vietnam High Ground, and uh, it's the same story. And I mean, there's there's some great Arvin units, and there's some god awful Arvin units. Mm -hmm. And then there's Hal Moore's first of the Seventh Cavalry and McDade's second of the Seventh going into Albany. You know, there's some damn fine battalions, and there's some really bad ones. Mm -hmm. So let's look at this from the other perspective. Um, we, we've talked about kind of the, the Allied forces. What did you make of the the enemy you were fighting? Did you did you find them to be of quality? Did you did you find them to be relatively easy to deal with? What was your experience like uh, engaging with them? In my case, uh, as an advisor, uh, the enemy was the Viet Cong, and uh, they they never really. Uh, attacked or 
uh, operated in uh, in great strength. They were, I think, probably the the most contact I had was with the Viet Cong platoons. There was a main force Viet Cong battalion that operated in the two provinces, mine and the province <coughs> south, Ninh Thuan and Binh Thuan provinces. They were first class, and I had one experience with them, and uh, and I was glad that most of my time uh, was spent fighting platoons. They really knew what they were doing. But uh, in that one fight against them, we ch captured a Chinese advisor, which kind of opened my eyes uh, as to, you know, maybe this is a bigger war than I think it is. Uh, the second tour uh, was totally North Vietnamese Army. Uh, never saw a, a Viet Cong. Uh, they were there, but they were there as cadre most of the time, and uh, we uh, uh, had an incident where uh, we were running into, on Highway 19, we had a security mission, and we were uh, running into basket mines, uh, little reed baskets and uh, full of rocks and so forth and, and explosive, plastic explosives with a detonator. And uh, my uh, intel, not intel, but the civil affairs advisor came to me one day and said, sir, can you get me some uh, extra piastres uh, from the funds? Uh, I have an idea. And this guy went out and contacted the villages where he knew that they were making the mines and said, I'll buy them from you. Don't put them in the ground. So this was a, a great entrepreneurial experience. This village, the two villages in, in, in mind, uh, were being paid by the Viet Cong to build the mines, and then they were selling them to us. You know, now that's <laughs> that's entrepreneurial excellence, in my opinion. Good capitalists. <laughs> Pure capitalism. Uh, that was kind of a, an interesting thing, but that that was the only Viet Cong experience in that second tour, and the rest of it was all NVA, and it was. Uh, let me tell you, those boys really knew their business. Uh, as in the seminar earlier this morning, we uh, I related that uh, an, an entire NVA division moved across the Cambodian border through the Idrang Valley and then turned uh, north toward the famous Monyang Pass where the French Mobile Force 100 was annihilated. The, uh, the battle went on for about two days and uh, they were moving, uh, think about this now, they were moving a division in the daylight across a major road into an enclave in the Jardin Mountains that was one of their, their sanctuaries. Uh, fortunately for us, and unfortunately for them, we killed two of the regiments. 
and the third regiment withdrew with the division headquarters and then went back across the border. We had no way to pursue them uh, except uh, the Air Force did uh, locate them and did a little bombing on the on the guys moving away, but uh, that was uh, that was a hell of a fight. Just think about that: moving an entire enemy division in the daylight across an area well defended and well secured. Uh, they were bold, and uh, I found that. Uh, to be uh, not shocking, but uh, a bit surprising to me. It's been all a thing. It was. I uh, I agree with General West. The, you never wanted to underestimate that enemy. Uh, the kind of the perception of you know the American Caucasian. Wow, they're little bitty guys. They got they wear pajamas. They wear uh, shoes made out of uh, soles made out of tires. You know, how bad can they be? Well, they were bad. They could hit you anywhere they wanted, unless you tripped on them, which what cavalry kind of does is trips on them. Uh, the only thing that, that I found that could ever really beat them was uh, overwhelming firepower. You know, you shoot a, a round of nails out of a M551 Sheridan, and it's going to do some damage. I don't care how smart you are, but uh, every time I went and landed in an LZ that wasn't in a... Uh, uh, secure location. I was always wondering where he would be if it's going to hit me. So their leaders, I, I, from my perspective, were were sound. They were cagey, and they would uh, hit you anytime they wanted to. You know, my experience is uh, three and a half years after Tet uh, is when I got in the country. The Viet Cong were, as I've read anyway, pretty much wiped out by Tet. Mm -hmm. So there was nothing left, but as Bill talked about, the cadres of folks. Um, I worked in War Zone D, so northeast of Saigon when I was with the, the uh, first cab. Uh, the regiment that was in the area around Wanlock was the 33rd, and the 33rd is one of the regiments that was in the Idrang Valley in 65 when the first cab went in there. Uh, so they were combat experienced. Uh, if you ran into the 33rd NVA, you were in trouble. I was a QRF platoon leader on uh, fire support base Mace one day uh, and got blown out by the battalion commander. We turned to land on the LZ. There were four burning Hueys on the LZ. They had a 51 caliber machine gun at the north end of it. We were coming in down south to secure the aircraft so they could get them out. Uh, nothing, no contact with them, but they had uh, they had sprung an ambush on one of the companies in my battalion. Walked in through, had 11 wounded and one killed in the first 15 seconds of the fight. Uh, so you know, if, if you weren't paying attention, you could get hurt in a hurry and. My opinion, I, I never fought my, when, what, what didn't dawn on me, I mean, as a lieutenant, your strategic perspective is the, the bamboo thickets you're in or triple canopy jungle. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you, you have no strategic perspective. But what we kept bumping into were small groups of three and four guys that were 
carting stuff between bunker complexes. This is before the Easter Offensive breaks out. What they were doing was they were stocking the bunkers with medicine, with food, with all kinds of stuff, and we would hit those guys and, and ambush them. Now that was probably VC or at least folks encouraged by the VC to, hey, how about hauling this for us? Mm -hmm. We young guys never made the connection that, well, maybe there's something going on up the road here mm -hmm. uh, and they're getting ready to come. But, you know, that's that's not something as a company-grade officer you think about. Uh, I, you know, I used a lot of artillery and it's checks. I mean, the thing that saved the Americans' ass uh, against NBA uh, light infantry was they couldn't bring the firepower to bear. I, I think I probably hold the world's record for uh, artillery fire by an infantry lieutenant in Vietnam. I mean, I shot it all the time. I just, I shot it until they got tired of pulling the rope, and, and because that's what it's for. Mm -hmm. So, in the, uh, as we're kind of discussing the uh, interactions with the Vietnamese, so kind of go to the next piece. We talked about the, uh, the army, we've talked about the enemy. Now let's talk about the civilians, because it, it, it is a, it's, a, it's of course a war around them, and they, they're on the battlefield fairly consistently. So Iraq and Afghanistan is fairly interesting where we're always in the populace, but often kind of separated out from them on the day-to-day -day basis, because we we're, we're <laughs> go back to a, a forward operating base and stay there. We might go out and talk to them, but we wouldn't necessarily hang out there extensively. So, what was y'all's experiences hanging, uh, working with the uh, with the populace? I had I very little uh, experience working with them in war zone D. A lot of where I worked were called free fire zones, and there weren't supposed to be any Vietnamese in there. Uh, at one point, I did. Uh, I'm, I'm setting up. I'm, I'm commanding a rifle company at that time, and we've set up a company size ambush on a logging trail. And down the road comes Papa San, his daughter, and a couple of kids in an ox cart, and they're heading down the road. And we can see guys in across a roam plow area chopping wood out in there. And I'm thinking, well, this would be a good place to bring the the air cab squadron in and take a look at what these guys are actually doing. Rather than doing a calic, we stopped them, picked them up, flew them back in to. Uh, to have him interrogated, and it turns out that this guy was just Papa San from a local village, and he's out trying to collect some some wood so he can sell it. But uh, very quickly, a a Cali, hmm? a Cali, a Cali, a Cali. Could you for our readers or for our listeners? Well, for you know, it would have been very easy. I, I didn't have oh, quite a, as, oh, a Lieutenant Cali. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, it would have been very easy because I had claymores out. I you know, it was it was set up as an L-shaped ambush on the logging trail would have been real easy to just go, and I mean, you're sitting there with a clacker in your hand, all you gotta do is set it off and the, and the whole world blows. But instead I stepped out and stopped this guy. You know, as it turned out, it was good. You know, that's kind of the, the, the influence of the Cali incident uh, carried on for decades in the Army. So, you know, in spite of himself, he made a positive contribution. Uh, and so did his, his uh, boss, Medina. You know, my company commander was very sensitive to that when I was a lieutenant. Don't do that kind of shit. Uh, and I think that permeates the Army to this day. Uh, 
My contact with the Vietnamese civilian population uh, was limited to my first tour. Uh, and I, my advisory team was headquartered in the province capital. So there were civilians all around us. Uh, many of them were bureaucrats. You know, they were part of the government and uh, the apparatus, and then there were, there were the villagers and uh, you uh, operated in, uh, in the villages uh, for security, for protection, their protection. Um, my second tour, very little contact with the civilian population. Uh, there was a, a relocated uh, tribe of molten yards uh, right at the edge of the uh, area of operation uh, along the Cambodian border, uh, but uh, very little contact with them. But uh, yeah, the, uh, the Vietnamese population uh, in 1966-67 was, was uh, pretty attuned to the war. They understood what was going on. And uh, uh, the, the hospital, the doctor who was head of the provincial hospital had uh, lost his father to the Viet Minh. Uh, he was also a doctor and he was executed by the Viet Minh. So he had a, he had a you know, little burr under his saddle. Uh, but uh, the, the general population was pretty friendly. And uh, of course, at least in the daytime. Yeah, at least in the daytime. Well, even at night, uh, in that in uh, in uh, the capital, uh, didn't have a problem. Along the periphery, outside, yeah. I have one. I have one incident in the hundred first where I took my platoon and we we walked a, a route, just kind of a practice patrol, and there were some Vietnamese kids in these little hamlets that we went through. And uh, you know, children are universal. GIs start handing out candy and throwing stuff. Kids are jumping around, and you know, six and seven-year-old kids are six and seven-year-old kids. It's true in Iraq. It's true in Afghanistan. It was true in Vietnam. And their mm -hmm. parents like that. You know, I think that's if had we invaded Eastern Europe and sent a bunch of trucks out in the lead into the advance party, handing out TVs, stereos. There's nothing the Russians could have done. <laughs> We'd have been in Moscow by nightfall if it wasn't as far away as Denver. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Colonel Burke. I didn't have any uh, other than my flippant comment about hushmates. Every morning, you know, you see them lined up at the gate of the fire base, or not the fire base, but Long Bend, the big, big complexes that were there. They didn't work on helicopters and uh, weren't in our in our area. Other than maybe they were entrepreneurs. They wanted money, and uh, to every time we would move a fire, blade, fire base, two hours later you'd have a small village outside, and you could buy anything you wanted there, anything. <laughs> so they were making money there, and, and if you didn't believe it, one day they had what they called an MPC exchange, where they changed the color of the MPC. And all the Vietnamese that had these thousands of dollars of the green MPC, now the MPC was red, mm -hmm. and their green was worthless. Mm -hmm. So there, 
and, and it was secret. I didn't even know about it until the S3 got in the helicopter and said what we were going to do. But, I mean, these guys were killing themselves because they just lost everything. So that's why I say they're entrepreneurs. They're going to make money, and uh, you have to recognize that. But, cause you, but you never knew if they were an enemy or not. That, that was the big problem for me. But uh, one, go ahead. One of the one of the aspects that you guys are talking about through all of this is uh, politics on both sides, right? So at home, um, you guys are there in the transition from Johnson and the McNamara War into Nixon Vietnamization, kind of on both sides of that. But there's also politics happening in Saigon and politics happening in Hanoi. Um, and I know, Colonel, you mentioned being kind of low level. You don't see those things. But were you aware of any of that, whether it's the American domestic politics or the South Vietnamese politics or the North Vietnamese politics in your time there? <coughs> I was aware of Jane Fonda. <laughs> uh, I was aware of the riots that were going on, yeah. and that was it. I had no clue about the politics. I mean, I'm a lieutenant and a captain flying a helicopter. Mm -hmm. All I knew was what I saw out of my windscreen, pretty much. Mm -hmm. I knew what the mission was, but I didn't know uh, why we were there or anything else. I mean, failing on my, I know now, <laughs> once I got back, but that's it. I had no perception of uh, the Vietnamese politics. Uh, my first or my second tour, well, my second tour I had a, a little bit uh, better perspective, but uh, the situation here in the, in the States uh, was filtered through my wife's eyes and uh, she lived in uh, on Long Island and uh, kept me informed about you know the, the politics of the, of the US mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately she she uh, kept me informed more about New York City politics than she did national <laughs> politics Mm -hmm. that's, that's important. Yeah, yeah, it, that's right. That was her AO. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, I, you know, like I said, it's the it's the bamboo thicket you're in, or the piece of triple canopy jungle. And uh, I knew on the ground what the effects of Vietnamization were, but it was really kind of interesting because when I, when I first I mentioned during the the seminar with the students. When I first joined my platoon down in the 1st Cav Division coming down from the 101st, I had myself and 19 enlisted. And the effect of Nixon's Vietnamization of war was as units started standing down, they would send guys home who were deep into their tours. So if you had eight, nine months, you'd go home. If you didn't, you'd come down. So I ended up with a platoon that was damn near T-O-N-E strength. So you know, you're talking 40, 45 soldiers and an, and an officer. And it sounded like a freight train running through the woods. You know, I mean, it just—you're not really sure how to how to do that. And thankfully, I ended up as part of all that uh, juggling of people. I ended up with a a really seasoned four-tour NCO who could be a platoon sergeant in his sleep, uh, who kind of took charge of that mob for me and got it to where it would work together. But left to my own devices with a bunch of uh, NCOs who'd only been through the shake and bake program, it it would have it would have been tough. But I had a guy who could who could handle it. Yeah, gentlemen, uh, what's interesting is like uh, is like uh, with the modern U.S. military, we come back and we, we entered into a life cycle program where you 
start up a unit basically from scratch. We train up, we deploy into Iraq for a set amount of Iraq or Afghanistan, my experience is Iraq. And then we come back and we kind of disperse out and kind of filter out throughout the Army. That, of course, was not most of y'all's experience, where you would go to a unit and then come back out. So what was it like coming from a combat organization in combat operations and then PCSing to Germany, Fort Hood, uh, Fort Benning, uh, and then trying to be a part of that organization having just come from combat? In my case, I came home the first time and went to the Armor Advanced Course and then stayed at the school as an instructor for a year. My second tour, I came home and went to Boston College to graduate school. A uh, special program, you go, you teach a class for the ROTC detachment and you, you can, the Army's paying for you to go to, to, to get a master's degree. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Boston College decided uh, they didn't want their ROTC program. So uh, I only had a year there. And the Army, in its wisdom, said, "We're sorry, you you got to go some, you got to get your master's degree on your own." So, you know, that was my welcome home. I did not go to a unit until uh, I left here, and I went to the uh, Second Armored Division at what is now Fort Cavazos, and uh, went to the Third Battalion, 67th Armor, which was about. 90 days old when I got there. It had been reorganized and uh, reestablished. And uh, that, was, uh, that was a challenge, for taking a brand new organization uh, with personnel who uh, had been in other battalions and were transferred over because they were designated by the yeah. commander to do that. And uh, so, uh, that that experience we eliminated from the army in that battalion the equivalent of one tank battalion. I mean that that'll tell you the the situation. But remember now the draft is ending. Uh, this is 1975. The draft is ending. Uh, we uh, we have the famous Volar. Mm -hmm. <coughs> The volunteer army is coming into effect. Uh, we don't want to do reveille in the morning. Uh, we just have a work formation after after breakfast. You know, it's and and Tom has commented that uh, the lack of a non-commissioned officer corps really hit home because we didn't have one, and uh, it got to the point where. Officers were both officers, and they were both non-commissioned officers. You didn't have you didn't have the quality of non-commissioned officer that you really needed. But uh, that righted itself. By the end of the year, that battalion uh, went to uh, Brigade 75, deployed to Germany for six months. It was one of the finest battalions I ever was in. And I went back to that battalion as its commander uh, a few years later. Okay. See, I came out of Vietnam as a, an armor officer, remember. 
and I had not been on a tank since AOB. And my platoon, my first platoon I was assigned was an armored cavalry platoon. I had three Sheridans, five M114s, an infantry track, and a mortar track. That was the cavalry platoon in those days. And I had been on an M60 since AOB. So when I came back from Vietnam, I went to Armor Branch, and I said, you know, I need to learn a tank uh, from the from the road wheels up. So I got assigned, managed an assignment to the 1st Armor Training Brigade. But that was tough because I was a designated guy to go to flight school. But I'd watch folks like Jack bring helicopters down through Triple Canopy Jungle. I said, you'd have to be a complete freaking idiot to fly those things. <laughs> so we're not doing flight school, we're staying on the ground. And uh, uh, first, first Training Brigade was, was a great assignment for me because it was, as, uh, as Charles West just noted, a uh, you know a transition between a draftee army and the all-volunteer force. And the, the draftees, for all the grief they take, those we had some really smart soldiers that were draftees. Yeah. And we had some guys who were volunteers who were not so smart. And you had to deal with them differently. And the NCO Corps that that really, you know, General West commented while we were talking to the students about how it's NCOs do individual training. That's what they're supposed to do. Uh, I, my company had 10 drill sergeants, uh, of which I think three of them were really armor NCOs. The rest of them came from because that's all they need is a hat. And then I'm supposed to have 17 tanks in the motor pool manned by guys who can sit in there and teach people how to be an armor crewman. Well, we didn't have any NCOs that, that could do that. Mm -hmm. uh, or we had maybe two or three. And the rest of them, we, we were keeping the best graduates from our AIT program, making them acting jacks, acting buck sergeants, and putting in tanks to instruct. That's how bad the NCO Corps uh, had been decimated by what went on in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And the Army couldn't do anything until we rebuilt the NCO Corps. My perspective is a little bit uh, more personal than uh, other than surviving Vietnam and happy to get home to my family. I decided as a reserve officer, I kind of liked this Army thing and I was going to think I was going to stay. So I, I was assigned to the uh, Air Cav Troop or the first of the 10th Cav at uh, Fort Carson. It was a really nice assignment. I liked it. So I checked in that uh, the day I checked in in the operations office. Uh, there was uh, probably 150 aviators. They didn't have any place to put us. So they were assigning us to these units. And they looked at me and said, sign your name here and go the hell away. <laughs> I, I got a call about a week and a half later. said, you want to come in and show us you can fly a helicopter? I did. Took an orientation ride. And they said, go away. Uh, they, they didn't know what to do with us. I mean, it's just an air capture. So then the the riff hit. Mm -hmm. The first riff. And, uh, huh? 75. Yep. And I, and I told my wife, I said, get ready. We're going to go back to Tennessee and find a job because the reserve officer, I know I'm going to get hit. Well, I didn't get hit. I said, well, that's unusual. Then the second riff hit. And they're getting rid of some really quality helicopter pilots. Everybody from Vietnam was, a, I thought, was a quality helicopter pilot. But they're getting rid of all these guys, just boom, go away. 
you're out of the army thanks and I, I really took that personal because I thought I was going to be one and the second riff hit and I didn't get hit and the third riff hit and I didn't get hit so after a while I figured I finally figured out they were getting rid of all of the guys that flew in these uh, aviation battalions the infantry officers the artillery officers all the the functional officer. I flew for the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment as an armor officer, so I figure I came back branch qualified, and and they didn't rip me for that reason. I think all the other infantry. If you were an infantry, if you were artillery, you were a signal, you were gone. Uh, that's my own theory of why they, who they picked to rift and who they didn't pick to rift. One Being, other qualifying thing that I happen to have a personal experience for that because I got to Fort Hood was processing in when they were delivering the letters yeah, to, yeah. to the first group in 1975. The What I learned was if you had a college degree you were probably safe. Oh, really? These were These were young captains who had been warrant officers, became captains yeah. No education. The only thing they knew was how to fly a helicopter, and we got too many of them, and we got to take the end strength down. And, and you, you could get to be an officer by submitting a postcard. One day you're a you're a what W two. Two weeks later, you're a first lieutenant. Just yeah. that quick. Yeah. So I, that is, that was my my own uh, personal opinion. Otherwise, other other than running in the airport at San Francisco and finding a latrine and changing clothes. Uh, that was my only experience. So you, you, I think all of you have commented on how you had a fairly um, circumscribed view when you were there because you had a job to do and you didn't much worry about strategy, things like that. Um, obviously you all had careers after Vietnam in the military and you've had a chance to see, one, how culture has treated Vietnam and also how academia has treated it. Colonel, you mentioned reading some of Dr. Jim Wilbank's books, for example. So how do you each look back at your service in Vietnam? given the time between it and now, and also all of the different ways our culture has treated it? Well, I, I do that. I think that when, I hope that when I cross the river, I'll be judged as having served honorably. Uh, my only regret is that I didn't buy any beachfront property at Bunktow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wouldn't That's be here, I think. <laughs> good, damn good French Vietnamese cooking there. I tell you, that was a beautiful beach. but. Uh, no, I, uh, I, I just, no regrets. I just, what you have to do, I mean, you don't uh, get to question it. You're told to do something, you do it yeah. to the best of your ability. That was, a, that was the attitude back then. I'm not sure it's that way now, but uh, no regrets. I, I had a good life. I think that's what you have to, that's the attitude you have to have about it. Uh, when the Kent State shootings happened. There were obviously big demonstrations and everything. They, they burned the uh, Air Force ROTC building on the University of Kentucky campus. One of the great tragedies of the war was there was a beautiful candy apple red 65 GTO that went up with that building. Um, but they came up and I'm sitting on the front steps of the Army ROTC building. And it said, well, how can you go do this? And, said, and so I asked him, I said, how would you like to live in a country where the Army got to decide which wars it was going to fight and which ones it wasn't. 
said, would you like to be in that country? And they had no answer to that. They hadn't thought beyond the end of their nose about anything. And the Army did in Vietnam what it was asked to do. Didn't do it well all the time, but it's kind of like, and I talked to the students today about uh, James Dubik's article, you know, winning battles and losing wars. We won all the battles. Even even when I was there and we were down to 150,000 troops, if, if, if they wanted to mess with us, we kicked their ass. We just lost the war because there was no vision of what the hell are we after. Yeah. I think uh, to tack on to that, uh, Colonel Harry Summers wrote a book, uh, uh, yeah. very, very famous uh, among a lot of us who uh, were imbued with Clausewitz in the Army War College, but he uh, he took Clausewitz and he applied Clausewitz theory to the Vietnam War, and the the uh, front piece of that book, uh, he was one of the negotiators uh, in Hanoi, and uh, he uh, he quotes, I think I can get the quote pretty well. The, Vietnamese, the American colonel said to the Vietnamese colonel, you know you never defeated us on the battlefield. The Vietnamese colonel said, yes, I know, and it's totally immaterial. Mm -hmm. you know, the, I think it's pretty obvious that there was a vision and there was a purpose and there was a strategy with the North Vietnamese. I don't think there was one with the South Vietnamese, and I think you'd be hard-pressed to find one among the American government mm -hmm. during that period of time. So following on from that, um, you have just come from a class of uh, American and, and Army officers, sister service, and some IMS students in, an, in a professional military setting. So what should current and future officers learn from the Vietnam experience, do you think? Just what I just said. Mm -hmm. You got to have a you got to have a vision, and they're field grade officers now. They're going off to where they can influence that. Mm -hmm. And uh, you uh, you have to have you have to have a purpose. You have to have a strategy, and you have to have a diplomatic circle around all the things that you do because it's not just an army, it's not just the State Department, it's not just USAID, it's everything. And if you don't have that uh, cohesive organization at the government level, then you're not going to be successful. It has to be consistent from 1946 to 1975. Think about what happened there. I mean, it's the same damn problem we had in Iraq and Afghanistan. The same thing that just keeps coming around to there's no vision, there's no end state, and thus there's no consistent strategy to deal with it because the goddamn objectives keep changing. Mm -hmm. uh, I made a comment in the, to the students that I think it's uh, they need to improve their ability to recognize the two types of leaders that you have in the Army the ones that are out for themselves and will do anything to get promoted and the ones that are out for the country that care about their men and will, will 
stand up for them. Soldiers see that just quick with the type of leader that, that this person is going to be. And if you can recognize them early, get rid of them. I told them, read, uh, you know, Once an Eagle, and you'll see the difference very clearly, the two different types of leaders that are in that book and uh, has consequences. Yeah. Too, so, many yeah. huh? so, too many Courtney Massingales. Huh? Too many Courtney Massingales. The last thing I suggested yeah. to the students was, uh, and I, I bothered the hell out of people in Newport, Rhode Island at the Naval War College with this. It's, you need to be teaching Julian Corbett instead of Clausewitz, you know, <laughs> because what made the British Empire great was that they understood how to pair, they had a vision for how to pair the Navy and the Army together and use it for strategic aims. Mm -hmm. And America, since since the, the manifest destiny and the westward expansion, we've never had a consistent vision of what we're trying to do that spanned uh, political administrations. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's always been just kind of yanked around and, and, well, I'm happy you're glad, I'm glad you're happy. If that doesn't work. Well, gentlemen, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you for joining us. Our pleasure. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.